Hi, and welcome to the Trail to Austin, the place to get to meet the people of Austin and find out how they became the people of Austin. I'm your host, Bob Morse, and sitting comfortably in his office chair across town is Joel McCall. We are socially distant. As always. Psychologically close, but socially distant. Well, eh, we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So... We have an interesting guest this week because in a roundabout way, this is almost like getting a second guest or a guest a second time, except we're getting the other <laughs> half of the guest this time. So I dare uh, say the be- the better half, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Um, you so, can tell Chris that. Okay, I will. Okay. This is, um, I'd like to, to meet uh, Christine Albert, um, part of the duo Gage and Albert. Albert and Gage, right? Albert and Gage. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Strike that, reverse it. Um, So, or if you're if you're our mortgage company, Gage and Gage. (laughs) Aha! There you go. Gage is my legal name. So. (laughs) Yeah. Well, when they want their money, do they really care what your name is? Yeah. No. So, uh, welcome, Christine Albert. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. No, it's a pleasure to have you here. So for the audience, tell tell them a little about your tell them a little about yourself. Thank you. I'll speak English at some point. <laughs> yes. Okay. You can edit it out later. Um, well, I, I I liked the premise of your shows, like um, you know how people got to Austin and and why they're in Austin and what this town is full of, the characters it's full of, and um, I have been here since. 1982 is when I moved here. I started coming here in the mid-70s um, because one of my dear friends lived here at the time. And it was music. Music was the magnet, of course. I moved here from Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I had moved there in high school. I'm originally from upstate New York, from Rome, New York. And my brother was a musician in Santa Fe. And I went out there to visit him between my sophomore and junior year of high school and fell in love with the mountains, the music, the poetry, the desert, you know, being away from home. <laughs> and I somehow I convinced my parents to let me uh, spend my junior year living in Santa Fe with my brother and his wife and his daughter. And they, I don't know how I convinced them. <laughs> they, they wondered that till the day they died. How did you ever convince us to let you go live in the mountains of New Mexico? So but I go, did. Did you go to high school in Santa Fe? Yeah, I did. I went to my junior year of high school. And then I graduated a year early. I was After that, my brother had moved away. And it was, really, I have to go back to public high school in upstate New York? You know, I'm like, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to just be out here in New Mexico. So I, gra- I had enough credits to graduate a year early. Nice. And then I, you know, did a little, little bit of college in... Albuquerque, a little bit of business school in Santa Fe, but really I wanted to be a musician, and uh, I knew that, and so I ended up diving into my career at age 19, um, started singing in Santa Fe, and then it was, you know, I was there for playing professionally for seven years before I moved to Austin, so I did all of my you know, growing and coming of age and learning how to be professional and and just learning how to be a person in Santa Fe. 
was an interesting place to learn that. <laughs> well, Santa Fe is such a, a hotbed for, for talent and for yeah. music. I mean, to this day. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It was, it was a very supportive, small community, but close community. So it was a great, great way to get a lot of personal support and not mm-hmm. be lost in a scary place. You know, it's like, yeah, get on stage and start singing. And then started playing in bands and, um, you know, was in several different bands. And then I, I knew I wanted to move eventually and that it would be really hard to move with a whole band. Uh, so I started playing solo, doing some solo shows at La Fonda Hotel. Mm-hmm. And just to, to feel like I could move somewhere and play on my own, which is what I did. And when I moved to Austin, the Driscoll Hotel was my first gig. Six uh, nights a week. And <laughs> didn't you come here with somebody? Well, I moved here. Well, I didn't. Um, actually, we moved separately. But Eliza Gilkison was, um, I was playing with her in New Mexico. And she had been, I met her when I, before I moved there, when I was 15. So I'd known her for a long time. We were very, we're almost like sisters. And at one point, I had been playing for many years on my own and with bands. And then Eliza asked me if I wanted to play with her in her band called the Turquoise Trail Band. And I was singing mostly harmony. And I really wanted to do it because I wanted to be on stage with a songwriter. Uh, I had so much respect for her songwriting, always have. Um, I wanted to be part of a, a musical project that was about original music. And it was a, a real gift to play with her in that band. And we, Rod Kennedy invited her to play the Kerrville Folk Festival. So we came as a trio in the spring uh, before we played the festival. And this was in... Um, Nine, uh, 81, I think. Yeah, we, we came in the spring of 81 and did a little tour, um, pre Kerrville all around the state with, I think, Bobby Bridger and Lindsay Hazley and, you know, just got to know this, all this wonderful community. Then we came back and played the festival in 1981. And we went back to New Mexico and we were both, you know, we both kind of made our decisions independently of each other that we were going to move to Austin. It wasn't like, let's move to Austin. I remember when I called her and said, I'm going to move. And she goes, I am too. I'm going to do it. I said, I am too. And Mark Holman is a a longtime studio owner and musician here. He and his wife um, had invited me to live with them. If I'd made the move, they had a bedroom in their house and it was like I had a nice family to, settle in with as soon as I moved here. So I, I just had so much, there were so many things that lined up. And during one of those visits here, I started visiting before I made the decision to move. I went to the Driscoll one day and said, would you ever need entertainment? Because I thought that looks kind of like La Fonda in Santa Fe. That's a cool old hotel. <laughs> Maybe I could get a gig there. And they, the guy that was the manager said, we just decided today to start having music in the bar and grill. And so he hired me for six nights a week, months before I moved here. So by the time I moved here, I knew I got here and I knew the next day I was starting a gig. And I ended up doing it for nine weeks. So it was very, uh, it was a really smooth way to hit town, 
have consistent income. And by the time I was done with nine weeks, I'd met so many people and I had other gigs and I was kind of embedded in the community. It was really meant to be. Yeah, you were kind of born under a lucky star almost, it sounds like. I was for that. (laughs) I'll tell you, I'll, I'll be really honest with you and tell you during that time between when we played Kerrville in the summer of 1981, and then I moved in June of 1982, and in between, in October of that year, I was raped in Santa Fe by someone intruding in my house. And it really, I had been feeling like it was time for me to leave Santa Fe. Like I had been there since I was really young and it was time to see what the world was like outside of that bubble. And I was starting to have a lot of negative things happen. Like my life there was unraveling a relationship I was in and just weird energy. And then that happened. And it was like, you would think that it would make me afraid to do anything and to just be frozen. But when I started, I was making trips to Texas, and every time I came here, everybody in Austin was just so supportive and so positive and spiritual. I was like, I just felt like there was this, these arms that were ready to, to take me in and to help me heal. It was, I needed to leave there, but I would have been hard to leave there without a destination in mind that felt so positive and, and I moved here pretty shell-shocked, honestly, by the time I you moved know, to Austin. I admire the fact that you have been so outspoken about your experience. Mm-hmm. And it, it feels like you want to share your strength and hope from that mm-hmm. experience with other people. And that, it's, uh, that's tremendous. Yeah, you know, it was uh, when I moved here... Um, I wanted to give back to the Rape Crisis Center. I had gone for counseling at the Rape Crisis Center in Santa Fe. Actually, they showed up at the hospital that night. I didn't even know they existed, but they were there to get me through that experience. So I felt so indebted. And part of my healing was wanting to do something for the Rape Crisis Center here in Austin. And so I reached out and I started putting together little benefits and playing, you know, and doing what I could. And... At one point, they asked if I would be willing to be a public spokesperson. And I I hadn't, and I was like, hmm, that's a whole other level, you know, another layer. Um, but ultimately, I decided, of course I do, because uh, being, uh, in being, remaining completely anonymous, everyone, I mean, I totally understand that and respect that if somebody wants to, but I'm already a public person. I was already a engaging in the community. I was already doing benefits where I was talking about it. So I just took the further step where I really became more of an official spokesperson because I felt like um, that helped to dispel that myth that the victim or survivor should feel any responsibility, you know, that that, that you take on that guilt. There's sort of that, well, what did you do that made that happen? You know, and even the police officer that came that night was like, so did you know this person? I was like, no, I'm trying to tell you. This is the window <clears throat> where he broke in. You know, it was, it was like it was hard for them to, yeah, so where were you? And I had been out hearing a friend play music that night with friends. So I said, well, I was out at, a, at the bar at the local hotel listening to a friend play piano. Okay, so you were out at a bar. You know, just like 
like this, mm. you know, and I felt like for me personally to be able to let go of any feeling like I needed to shoulder the responsibility of what happened. I need to just talk about it and That's say very this courageous. happened. And so, but it was a very, um, you know, integral part of my decision to leave Santa Fe and, and why I was so drawn to Austin. It was such a positive spirit. I'm glad when you, uh, when you got here, you already had a place to uh, live and work. And so that had to make, you know, keep your mind yep. going and keep you. Yeah. That's what made me think of that when you said, boy, you sure had a lucky star with you. I think I, it was, I, every time I turned around, there was a sign like, yes, do this. Yes. This is the right move. This is, this is good. And uh, otherwise it wouldn't have. And everything that was happening in Santa Fe was not like that at that time. And I adore Santa Fe. I always have. I still do. Um, it's like a home to me. But at that time, it was trying to push me out. It was like I was being pushed out of the nest. <laughs> it took some pretty radical experiences to get me out of there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But it, you did push it to the limit there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I actually, my uh, one of my friends at the time, I said, you know, you think this is the right move? Like the night before I left. And she goes, this, this is so overdue. It's like, it's so right. It's starting to stink. <laughs> <laughs> this is so, right. like, so, do you remember playing at Cat Mountain Inn with Eliza? I do. I do. That was that my was bar. fun. That was I know. I remember that. That's when yeah. I first met you, exactly. and that was before we moved here, right? Yeah. I think that was on one of those trips where we would come yeah. and do a few little gigs and meet people. And yeah. Exactly. So we've known each other thirty-nine years. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> Wow. And you're only 42. So yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> that's really amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so I've known, um, Eliza since 1971. So 48 wow. years, like almost, yeah. we're all almost 50 years. <laughs> that's that's uh, amazing. I'm pretty sure that time takes on a different value the older we get. Oh, it definitely does. Yeah. It definitely does. So, the thing you have always been so civic minded <clears throat> and uh the, I, I've kept up with your projects. The one you're involved with now is is really close to my heart. I just lost my father in law about two months ago. Oh wow, yeah. And uh uh tell us about Swan Songs, about what the inspiration was and how it grew and where it is today. Yeah. Well, I'm in my swan song's office actually right now. <laughs> I finally got tired of working from home and there's no one over here in this building. So I thought I'm just as safe there in that little office. And, um, but, uh, the inspiration, swan song's first, uh, for those that don't know is a nonprofit that fulfills musical last wishes. So if someone is nearing the end of life and music has been important to them, they can reach out and request whatever style of music that is. We don't decide what would be meaningful for them. They tell us, and then we go find the professional musicians to fulfill that. Um, we did one a couple of weeks ago virtually on Zoom um, for Tower of Power. Wow. wow. And, and it was like, how are we going to do this? And we got Carlos Sosa from Grooveline Horns to just Zoom with, with the recipient and play sax along with Tower of Power and talk about they talked about Tower of Power concerts they've been to, and Carlos had sat in with them and 
one of his former bandmates was uh, the vocalist of the band for a long time. So it was just sharing the enthusiasm for a certain kind of music. And uh, so we were able to pull that off. So it's um, whatever resonated for them when they, when their life was, when they were active and engaged and that speaks to their heart. And there's something about bringing that music in near the end of life that reconnects them and connects the family. It's almost as much for the friends and family because it gives them all something to share. And that was the inspiration for it was being asked to do that for someone who uh, had been a fan of my music. He and his wife used to come hear me every week, every month at Waterloo Ice House in the early 90s. And he was dying of a brain aneurysm, so he was 40 years old mm. and couldn't speak and couldn't walk and was, uh, you know, going to be losing his life in the next month or so. And Denise, his wife, Denise Swan, and his name was John Swan, and she asked me if I would come play at their house because he couldn't come out to hear me anymore. And so, of course, I did with Mitch Watkins and Paul Glass. The three of us went and did a trio in their living room. And Denise invited his coworkers and friends and some family members and the neighbors. And so there was this group of people in the living room. And we were playing for John. They brought him out in his wheelchair. We were playing for him. But we were playing for them. And having music there gave them a reason to come over and to be with him. And that was what was so powerful was seeing him get to be around people because especially the nature of his illness was that he couldn't speak. And it becomes, it's uncomfortable. For some people, it's uncomfortable when someone's dying, even if they can speak, just because it's so vulnerable and it might trigger an experience that, that they've had or a loss that they've had and they don't know what to say and they don't know how to be with that kind of impending grief and uh, uh, having music there's a reason to come and be together and you feel like you don't have to say some big profound thing to your loved one or your friend the music is the music kind of speaks for all of the emotion in the room no matter what kind of music it is it's amazing how suddenly the lyrics become so profound in a different way. You know, even simple Motown songs or something. I've seen Swan Song's concerts where you go, oh, I'm listening to this song in a whole new way. And uh, so it, when I left there, I thought, wow, that was such a simple thing to do and so profound. And there must be so many people in Austin who have their favorite style of music and would have no idea how to get that to them especially at that time you're dealing with so much when you're a family and a caregiver and you don't have the time to do a Google search and how would I get Marsha Ball to my house, you know? <laughs> so at first I imagined it as like what happened with me, a, a specific artist being requested. And that does happen. But over the years, what surprised me when we finally put the program together and created a nonprofit and, started doing outreach and the requests start coming in, it's evolved into more just a style of music. So they can say mariachi or blues or bluegrass or opera or we got a request for Japanese music. And then they trust us to go find the right musicians to fulfill the request. Um, so it's not always for a specific artist. So then it op really opened it up 
to to just you know a wonderful way to engage with the Austin music community. Part of what's really important to me and has been it's almost like the the other half of our mission is to provide you know to fulfill musical last wishes and to bring comfort through music at the end of life, but also to support the music community so we compensate the musicians. So right from the start, that was why I knew it had to be a nonprofit. As we put it together, my friend Gay Logan was a therapist, and I told her, I was sharing with her about this concert I had done. She had a friend that was dying at Christopher House, and we both recognized, oh, this needs to be a program. So we kind of set up a program on a volunteer basis informally for a while. Um, uh, New Texas Festival, which became Contemporary, Craig helped us with it and had it under their umbrella for a little bit. And it was just kind of floating there. And I went through a lot of life changes and couldn't really focus on it, but it kept like calling, almost like beating me over the head. You need to do this. And one of the things that stopped me was I didn't want to be in a position where we were constantly calling musicians and asking them to donate their time because I felt like musicians always get asked <laughs> for nonprofits. Um, and although that's evolved over the years. But um, I wanted musicians to be compensated and I wanted to be able to use professional musicians so that we knew we could really trust that it was experienced people walking in those rooms and who could really be a container for all that emotion and rise to it, rise to the occasion. Um, but I didn't want the families to have to pay anything. So eventually I called Gay and I said, I think this needs to be a nonprofit. I want to, I want to create this as a real nonprofit. Um, and I have an idea for a name. And so I told her about the name Swan Songs, which we hadn't been using. And I finally went and filed the paperwork and created a 501c3 in 2005. So it was from 1992 to 2005. Wow. While it was just kind of, long. yeah, it was just, it was there and we did a little bit, but it was, it was constantly in my mind and, um, finally made the commitment. Actually, it was right after my son graduated from high school, but I felt like I had the, I had a little bit of time, like I could focus on it. And um, so we created the nonprofit and Gay was on the board. She was the, one of the founding board members and my co-founder. And, um, and then she, she moved on and created another nonprofit and moved to Colorado. So over these last 15 years, I've really been just kind of it's been my baby and and with an amazing board and we gradually started we did more and more requests and when I had more time I started focusing on developing the infrastructure and the board and we got a board that knew how to do that so now we're you know we have um well before the pandemic we were doing we had one to two requests every day. So we were on track to do about 450 concerts this wow. year. Wow. And we have, we have a staff of, you know, four, four, four people, um, actually five now. And um, so we had, you know, one person focusing on volunteer management and outreach to facilities. One booking the concerts is a job in itself, doing all that coordinating, the musicians, the facility, the professional contacts, the family. And then um, an operations manager 
and then and me. So we've, you know, we were, we've been really on overdrive for a while. And when this pandemic happened, we had to shift to virtual. So that's been almost busier to try and figure all that out. We had to mm-hmm. create all of that virtual delivery <laughs> sure. and find, all that that entails. Do you find so, that as you, um, as you've had to do it virtually, it's easier to get some of the musicians sometimes to set up virtually? Uh, no, oh. not really. <laughs> no, no, because it's, I mean, when we first started in that first two weeks, everybody was learning everything. So a lot of musicians were like, no, I I don't know how to do that yet. And everybody's learning it. So it gets easier. Um, What we found was on the receiving end, it has not been easy for, like we don't get nearly as many requests because everyone is so maxed out at the care facility. Like a lot of the, a lot of the recipients were, live at care facilities, um, at nursing homes and that because they're on hospice care, but there's not many physical hospices, just, just Christopher house. So they're actually living in a, a care facility on hospice care. And those facilities were locked down and they're dealing with so much extra protocol procedures, dealing with their, their residents being isolated, people being sick. Um, so, it's not as easy to, oh, yeah, we can have an iPad ready. We can have an iPhone because the families can't even come in. If the families could be there and go, I'll bring my iPhone and you can do a Zoom concert and I'll be there and set it all up. It was all on the staff. And it's, so it's been what we found at first was that it, what was easier for them um, would be just a, re- a recording that they could access. So we had musicians record a concert for a recipient and say, Hey, Joe, I hear you love Hank Williams. I'm going to sing you a bunch of Hank Williams songs and they record it. And then we upload it to our website and give them a link and they can watch it anytime. So, so the interactive part, we've only done a couple of the actual zoom interactive, mostly because it's tricky to schedule and they don't, they're not sure when they'll be able to have a, a device available and when, and if they'll be able to. Um, so that's been a challenge. And a few weeks ago, the governor, uh, designated funds for, I don't know if you noticed, I tuned into it, a bunch of money to provide, uh, laptops for the care facilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they are trying to get them more connected because it's going to go on for a while in those places, especially. So it was, and it's very, every concert is more complicated. It takes a lot more time to coordinate. And musicians, we'd have musicians send a test to Chris, my husband, and Chris would look at it and go, okay, you got to position your, if you're only using your laptop to record too close to the guitar, we can't hear your voice, lift it up. And you got a mic in front of your face, put the mic to the side, sing next to it, but not in front like so we were doing a lot of coaching and then they would we'd have to teach them how to upload large files and it's just it's been a learning curve for all of us for the musicians and for us and and then what's our procedure for we had a whole procedure in place for at the end of a a concert in our database we would mark it complete and it would trigger a check request you know so our accountant would pay the musician and so we've had to set up all these new procedures 
what triggers that, you know, and <laughs> so we don't forget to pay them. And so, but now, um, it's kind of like everything. I feel like we'll go back to doing live concerts, of course, but I don't think we'll ever let go of the virtual option because sometimes somebody's, a lot of times recipients are immune compromised and they shouldn't have anyone come in their house. And so they, now we have an option. Now we don't, their hospice worker doesn't have to say, no, we can't do a concert because they're too high risk. They well, can say, we'll do a virtual one. Not only that, that kind of expands your reach. Exactly. No. Geographically. One, another exactly. thing we did partway through, we realized there is such need right now because our mission has always been very defined end of life, musical wish, last wishes for one individual. It's about a certain person. And sometimes we go into a facility to play for them and it's in the main activity room and other people get to enjoy the music. But the focus is on that individual. And I have been really um, committed to keeping that mission defined narrowly because I felt like there are other organizations, for one thing, that provide music at facilities in general or in hospital or room to room. But also, it would be too much to take on. Oh, it didn't feel like we had the infrastructure and that the mission is so compelling when it's you're fulfilling something for one individual mm -hmm. who loves your particular style of music. So it was a very compelling thing to ask musicians to do. Um, so I've always felt, no, we don't provide music in general for a facility. We, it's about a person. But during this situation, we started realizing there's so many people that are so isolated. So the residents are isolated. The staff is completely overwhelmed. They're stressed out. There's people in, that are, you know, somebody has a mother in Philadelphia who's isolated in a care facility there. We can send them a virtual concert as well as we can do that here. So one of the first things we did is open it up and say, if you know of anyone that's isolated or any facility that needs music, the very first thing we did is get, we hired a lot of musicians to do, to record concerts that we posted on our website. So there's, you know, uh, Beatles and American Songbook and Spanish, Spanish language ballads and mariachi and blues and children's and Hank Williams. So we, we just posted 20 different genres on the website and let people know that they could go watch it there. So any thought to recreating this in other cities? Uh, that's interesting. One of my two-hour Zoom meetings today was a committee meeting because we have, a while ago, um, we hired um, a professional who has expertise in scalability of nonprofit mm -hmm. missions, um, assessing an organization to see how how ready they are to scale, how what they would have to accomplish before they could replicate their mission in other communities. And we did that because I got tired of answering people that would reach out to me about Portland, Oregon, or Boston, or, uh, you know, Indiana. I've had so many requests ever since this started saying, how can I create a swan song here? And I would say, 
well, we're just getting started and we have to really get our foundation strong here and then we'll figure that out. But we do want to do that. And I have a record. I have email addresses and contacts with all these people. And I just kind of like when I started it, I finally got to the point where I thought, I don't know how to do this, but it's harder to not do it and wake up every day and feel like I'm not fulfilling something I'm supposed to do. <laughs> right, <laughs> like, right. Don't let the fact that I don't know how to do it stop me from doing it. And that's how I, feel, <laughs> how I feel about expansion. I just feel like it's at this point, we're pretty well grounded here. There's, of course, there's we're constantly evolving and strengthening how we do things and becoming more, you know, have more and more integrity. But we've done so much in the last 15 years that it's time to start figuring out what is it we would offer to a community? How would that structure look? What, what have we learned that they can take advantage of, that they don't have to start from the ground up? So we hired someone. She did a several months interviews, looked at everything we have, ended up with an assessment of her recommendations about different ways we could approach this. And we've put together what we call the North Star Committee, a small committee of just four board members and one outside person. And we're defining all of it, saying here's, here's how we would approach it. These are the questions we have to answer. We're not even trying to get the answers yet. We're just, if we did it this way, if we adopted this model, what would we need to do? And if we adopted this model, we have two different models we're looking at, which will probably end up being options for a community. And then we take that to the board, and then we start drilling down and building essentially toolkits. And to be able to say to a community, this is what you have to have in place. These are the guidelines. This is what we've learned. These are the forms we use, the privacy forms. This is the custom database that we've built that we would like you to use to manage your concert because it's super efficient and it also then would give us access to all the demographics of how their program's doing so that we have all that information. So we're way into that. Wonderful. Really Wonderful. ready. Really ready. I mean, we're not ready to do it like go Portland, but we're very far along with the process with that intention. And it's a lot. It's like a whole other thing. Like, okay, now we have to have meetings about this. But it's 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 exciting because it's you know the more conversations we have, the more we're answering those unanswered questions. Mm -hmm. And you said and you get how many work. requests a year? Like four hundred and yeah, we we were we were on track this year. Last year we had like three hundred and forty, and then this year we were getting. We can average it out. It was like 1.4 requests a day. So it was every day we had a request. So we had quite often as many as 12 concerts in process in the planning stage, booked for two weeks from now, looking for the musician, you know, it's just juggling all kinds of just constant. And then it was amazing. It just stopped. We had, we had a board meeting on March 10th. And one of our board members is a, phys a retired physician. And I remember that was my wake-up call. It was like we had it on the agenda how coronavirus might impact swan songs. But he was like this. We were, oh, oh, okay. And by that was on Tuesday. And by 
Thursday, we had made the decision, we have to stop offering live concerts. We, we can't, we can't go into, we can't risk this for our musicians or for the residents. You know, it's, it's, we got to stop. Um, so on Thursday, we were busy planning all of the, the communications, writing emails to our professional contacts, to our volunteers, to musicians. We were getting all the communication ready. Or maybe we did that. We started that Wednesday night. We were getting it all ready on Thursday. And we had three more concerts booked on Friday. And by the time we got the communication out Friday morning, two of, we were going to do those last three. And Friday morning, in the morning, two of those facilities were saying, no, we're on. And then about an hour later, they'd call and go, oh, we just got the word. We're locking down. So oh, those right. didn't happen. And then there was another one at the, in the afternoon on that Friday. And we called and they said, no, we're good to go. And when the musicians and the Leah, our volunteer coordinator, pulled up into the parking lot, the director was outside saying, they just locked us down. <laughs> oh, wow. And he said, he said, but you could do it outside. And so they brought the recipient outside and our last concert was outside. So that was March 12th. And we had been March 9th. I was just like, you know, business as usual. We were buzzing. So it was, and that it just stopped. That's a quick stop. Yeah, yeah it was. Just, and it took, you know, we spent a week going, oh. And then by the following week, we were hiring musicians to do virtual concerts and, you know, really changing. We were pivoting big time. No, that's great, though, that you guys were able to do that that quickly. Um and I assume you kind of have a go-to database, for lack of a better word, of musicians that you can count on, you know, when you you need to do we, something quickly. And Oh, yeah. And because a lot of our, our concerts are, are quick turnaround, some of them are like, you know, two weeks from now is okay. Other ones will be, can you get somebody here today? We've done that. Yeah. And had somebody there that afternoon, had them pass away right afterwards. Wow. Um, a lot of times we have, we book it for four days from now and then they call and they say, he just took a turn. Can they come sooner? So yeah, we have a deep database and we have an amazing database that a volunteer built for us, custom designed. And so we always had a donor database and then we'd try and manage our concerts with that. And it was really hard. So he built a database for all of that so that we have musicians categorized by styles of music and the instruments and covers, even cover songs, who can cover Selena. And we can constantly be, be massaging that database. So we can do, we got a request. We start at the database doing a search for this type of music and all of the different musicians that can do that come up. And then, you know, we start filtering. And then when someone requests the concert, they request online and the request now goes directly into our database. So it becomes a concert record right away. So anytime we book a musician or a volunteer, we assign a volunteer, a professional contact that requested it in our database, those are always tied together now. So we'll always know what musician played that concert, what professional contact um, requested it. And the database then triggers the check request. And so it's so much more organized. It's so much better. So have you had any 
training or for the musicians or any conversations with the musicians? Yeah, we, we do have conversations and we've had a lot of training for our volunteers, our liaisons. Um, the, the liaison, concert liaison is a volunteer role and they attend the concert and they act as the liaison between the family and the musician. They get the paperwork signed and they make sure everybody's comfortable. They help the musician load in. They, um, and we do a lot of training before that. Uh, but it's, but we know who those people are and the musicians, we don't always know who we're going to use until we go, uh oh, we don't have a Japanese musician, you know, somebody can play Japanese music and then we find somebody and so we don't have as much time to train them, but we have very specific um, guidelines that we send them. This is what to expect. And our concert manager, when she calls them, if they're new, she talks through what it's like. Uh, would you be comfortable in this kind of environment? Um, the liaison is there to support the musician. That's why we finally decided we have to always have a representative there. Well, we can't have a staff member at every concert. So it's a very meaningful volunteer role. And uh, we decided that at one time I had Nick Connolly booked to play blues in a backyard at a home in Austin. And he was set up and ready to go. And then the owner of the house got home and he was drunk. And the recipient was the girlfriend of his brother that was living there. It was like kind of disconnected family. And he got really mad and was, threatening with a gun and told Nick to get there. So I was like, ah, and I pulled up right in the middle of this. Nick had gotten there early and I was there, but not quite in time. And I thought, wow, we have to just always have someone there to, yeah. to, to head off at the path, whatever might happen. And uh, we don't have very, very often at all, anything like that, but, but it can be emotional, and it's emotional for the musician. And you know, like the, the family, the recipient might be getting tired, but the family doesn't want to say we need to stop now. But the liaison is trained to see that and go, "How about one more song?" And so we we that's the kind of thing that I want to be able to share with other communities. Everything we've learned, the mm -hmm. guidelines that we have that musicians follow and volunteers follow, that's from experience that list has gotten longer and longer as we've had experiences. Mm -hmm. So, so the, interesting you know, we don't have as much training for musicians as I would like, but they definitely are, are aware of what they're going into. So I was thinking of a question that might be kind of interesting for our audience. Would it, besides the request for Japanese songs, what, is, what are some of the unusual requests you've got for unusual genres of music or something? Yeah. Um, well, Lithuanian accordion was one. <laughs> and I was just, ah, okay. Um, we've had, um, we had a request for heavy metal. And it was really hard. To, we didn't have heavy metal artists in our database. So we started reaching out and doing research. Because you never, it's not the first genre you would think of if somebody's dying that they would want. Um, it took us a while. We couldn't get that, the people that, were recommended um, to get back to us to lock it in. And we didn't get the concert booked before the recipient passed away. Mm -hmm. So that was really frustrating. But one of the things we do is if we're in the process of booking a concert or we have one scheduled and the recipient passes, we go back to that family and say, 
Um, they get, he didn't, you know, the, your loved one didn't get the music. But if you're having a memorial, obviously that music resonates. We'd be happy to provide the music for the memorial instead. Oh, nice. And uh, so we did that, and they did. <laughs> so they had heavy metal music at the actual <laughs> memorial gathering. So that worked. <laughs> so we had a lot of mariachi. That's our biggest, that and Frank Sinatra are the biggest requests. Although we're in these 15 years, I've watched it shift from Frank Sinatra to more and more Bob Dylan and the Beatles and the Eagles. And it's like, ooh, <laughs> that's kind of my music now. <laughs> so what's that telling us? <laughs> I know. I know. And that's, to me, that's kind of, um, you know, I want this thing to live, uh, you know, for eternity. So as Swan Songs evolves over the years, that will happen, you know, in 40 years, I want there to be a Swan Songs, and who knows what the music request will be. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, it's really interesting to sing, because it's just a reflection of the culture. Sure. Yeah, you have to that's find interesting. some. interesting. It's almost like the rings on a tree. Yeah, right. You know. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you're gonna have to so, find some Justin Bieber and um, Britney Spears impersonators before long, I guess. Yeah, huh? yeah, we've had definitely we've had Cher and Selena, and um, recently we had a request for uh, uh, this was a virtual one, Cindy Lauper and Mozart, and usually again, yeah, it's like <laughs> usually when we get requests that are that diverse, we say you're gonna have to choose one. We can't, we can't find something. But then we thought, well, this is virtual. You know, we could just put together as Mozart and Cindy Lauper. You know, we don't have to have the same musicians. We could get two different musicians. But we did get um, a couple that were able to do it, and that was Will Taylor and Karen Mall. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Karen learned Cindy Lauper songs, and Will did a beautiful Mozart with Karen playing guitar along with him. Well, speaking of. Music certainly has been the driving force in your life. You also have other musical interests. Uh, speaking specifically about the Recording Academy. Oh, yeah, right. That's another another reason I'm on Zoom all the time these days. I mean, my life has been so busy these last you know number of years. I started serving on the national board of the Recording Academy, which is the membership organization that puts on the Grammys and the members vote in the Grammys um, in 2007. So I started making trips to right about the same time I was, I was starting Swan Songs right when I ran for the local chapter board. I thought when Troop graduated from high school, I thought, Oh, I'm going to have so much time. I'm going to do all these things. <laughs> and then they both grew at the same time in commitment in this way that I never anticipated. Um, Chris never anticipated. <laughs> He's right. like, what, what the heck? You just created a monster or two. Um, but I, so I've been on the national board for many years as first for four years as a trustee. It's an elected position. So I had to run for the position twice to be a trustee for two terms. So then I ran the local, you? the local chapter board. Um, okay. there's 12 chapters. So the local Texas chapter board elected me to be trustee. Texas trustee on the national board. Each chapter sends representatives to serve on the national board. And the national board is the board that's really the fiduciary of the organization that makes, 
you know, reviews the budgets and sets policy and all of that. The local boards are advisory that help um, activate the programming in the community and help educate the community and um, be a part of the Grammy process and education for students. And Music Cares is a non the nonprofit that provides financial support for musicians and music people in times of crisis. I'm also on that board right now. Um, so I love that. That's what part of my passion for getting involved. So I've, the local chapter elected me to serve as trustee for two terms. Then within the national board, I ran for vice chair and was vice chair for two years. Then I ran for chair and I was chair for two years. So I was, you know, eight years of huge commitment, lots of trips to L.A., then I was off for two years, and then they asked me to come back um, in the position of chair emeritus. So I've been chair emeritus for four, almost four years now. And I'm next May I'll be done for the really? national board. Really, Christine? <laughs> well, I would have to start. I would have to like start all over, running locally to get on the national board again. You know, I love music cares. I hope to continue, and I'll. You know, I'm sure I'll be involved. There's a lot of. Um, committee work. I've been on all of the committees, still am. As a, right now, I'm an officer. So as an officer, you're a part of every committee. And so, But since the pandemic start, started, I think there have been like six trips to LA I would have taken that I haven't taken. But those have all been on Zoom. So I'm on, I'm on virtual meetings a lot. A lot. Between the two organizations. So Okay, obviously you and I are friends. We've we've known each other. About this pandemic, both you and Chris got sick, mm-hmm. and uh, it, I guess it was never officially called COVID. But uh, yeah, we both tested negative, but I our doctor has kind of listed it as presumed positive because he said our symptoms were way too consistent and. There, he said, there's really nothing else out there that would create these symptoms that would be that easy to contract if you're not going anywhere, if you're yeah. not really doing anything. It's harder to just pick up a random bug. And, uh, and the way it came on and the symptoms and the, the progression of it was so consistent with COVID that he, we both got, got tested negative. And he said, okay, but I want you to just, he said, I'm putting it down as, suspected positive and going to log it that way because they like to track, you know, what's really positive and what's possibly a, a, a false negative. He listed it as a false negative. I'm so mind. glad you guys kicked it. <laughs> I know it was, it was not fun. And it was, um, it was like, we both kept saying, I've never felt anything like this. And wow. we were, we were keeping in touch with Ray Benson because, it seemed like the way it manifested for us was very similar to him and a similar time period, similar symptoms. And none of us had it go seriously into our lungs. I had a cough and shortness of breath for a period of time. Um, but it never went into that deep lung thing. And we all think it's because we're singers. <laughs> Ray, said, Ray said, I think it's because we sing all the time. And I was like, I think so too. <laughs> she just decided that. But what's weird is that we don't know for sure, but even if we knew for sure, they don't know for sure if that actually gives you immunity. <laughs> so it was, at first I was like, I really want to know, 
So I know if I'm immune, but now they don't really know that you're immune. You can get it more than once. So we continue to be super careful. Yeah, I saw a report the other day that said that even 10%, somewhere around 9 or 10% of the people who actually, they do know they have it, didn't ever develop antibodies for it. And right. That's, it was right. kind of like, well, so all these people who thought, oh, once I got it, I'm good. You know, maybe not. Yeah, there's a woman in Dallas the, yesterday, story, she tested positive again. She had it really bad. She came out of it, and all of a sudden, her symptom that she had was that her blood pressure spiked up to like 212 um, for the top number. And she went to the hospital and she was positive. And it was because she was coming, developing coronavirus again, having the symptoms and got sick again. So she was really bummed out. <laughs> like, oh, man. Ah, I thought I was past it. Well, yeah, it was, it was kind of scary at the time. Sure. Would be. Well, speaking of Chris... You guys are still making some music, I understand. Yeah, we we are. You know, we've all along, we've um, had our duo career as Albert and Gage. But then in the last few, and, you know, he's played every Monday night at Don's Depot for 25 years. So when this happened, he immediately went into streaming Monday night. Monday night, not at Don's Depot. And this crowd just gathers with him every Monday. And I'm behind the camera but then I run out and sing and sit in a few times, which is what his Mondays always were. He always had people sitting in. And now he has uh, virtual sit-ins. He has people send recordings, and he plays along with them. We did two weeks where we had – or three weeks we had guests on the porch. We had somebody come and play on the porch, and we played along with them. We put chords out, mic'd them out there so we could hear them in our headphones, but we were safe. <laughs> so it's too hot to do that now. But – what we didn't do right away was Albert and Gage because I was so busy with swan songs and we have tons of like people needing videos from us for different things. We've been super busy. I did one French um, a show of all French music, which was really nice as a, as a fundraiser for Music Cares. So we raised like $3,000 for Music Cares that night. That was nice. But we've decided we miss our Albert and Gage thing because we do different songs when it's the two of us together as opposed to just Chris. So we're going to start doing Friday nights at 8. We do Mondays at 8 with the Don Zippo thing. So starting um, tomorrow, June, whatever date this is, 19th, we're going to 19th. start. Yeah, we're going to try Juneteenth. We're going to do our 8 p.m. Albert Engage. So hopefully we have an air conditioning system being installed today, and they just called and said, this is taking longer than we thought. We'll be here tomorrow. And we're like, well, you better be done by 8. <laughs> No kidding. So where can people uh, tune in to see this? Uh, well, the it's on Facebook. Um, the Monday night is streamed originally from the Chris Gage Facebook page, but then we also put it on Albert and Gage and Christine Albert. We put it. We just right away start sharing it on all our pages. But then for people that aren't on Facebook, we embed the code. As soon as we go live, we run upstairs and embed the code on our website on albertengage.com. So that's so people that aren't on Facebook can see it there. Great, and, that's very um, cool. We'll do that. We'll do the Albert and Gage show that way as well. Yeah, it took us a while to figure that out, but it finally we finally figured it out. And I say we, Chris, figured it out. <laughs> he figures out all this stuff. Um, so yeah, so it helps because people can watch it that aren't on Facebook. All right. Well, I think Joel, is it time to have a little fun now? I think so. Oh, now what? 
Well, now we're going to ask you a series of questions. Oh, wow. <laughs> so um, you kind of told us what brought you to Austin, but what was what was your first impression of Austin when you got here? Um, soulful, very soulful community and, um, and big. I remember driving down I-35, just was like, oh my God, this is a big city. And it was actually the first mall I ever went to. <laughs> Do you remember what Mark Holman's, um, it was, um, well, it was like spring. Um, we came and did the pre-Curville tour in March. I mean, the very first time I came here was in the 70s with my best friend lives here. And I went to see Joe Ely at Soap Creek. And, you know, so I was like, it was total, you know, hippie going around to hear music and walking on 6th Street and Barton Springs and all that in the 70s. But when I came back with Eliza um, and started meeting people, I remember that it, it was pretty overwhelming to be on the on I-35 because it just looked like such a huge city to me because I really hadn't been in many cities. I just, you know, Santa Fe, upstate New York. And then I went to the mall and I'd never, we didn't have a mall in Santa Fe. And when I left upstate New York, there weren't malls. So <laughs> that was pretty impressive. <laughs> and hot. Well, that's I why I was asking hot. what time of year it was. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, because I, when I, by the time I moved here, I moved here in the summer and I remember I would get down at the Driscoll and drive my little red truck without, I didn't have air conditioning and that was pretty miserable playing gigs. I would have to like play, I would play up in Georgetown, a solo gig and I would load my PA and drive up there at three in the afternoon, unload it, going up these back stairs. It was a venue that had their little the uh, bar upstairs. Cafe on the square. Cafe on the square, exactly. <clears throat> I played there for I knew years. you'd know it. <laughs> and then you load in your PA by yourself at four mm -hmm. in the afternoon with the no air conditioning. <laughs> Absolutely. So other than traffic and obviously the skyline, what's the uh, biggest changes you've seen? And it doesn't have to be physical. It can be just the, the mood of the city, the tone, or it could be something physical that yeah um well obviously the traffic we we bought our house in uh, september of 1999 and it's over near where hills cafe was mm -hmm. um so congress and ben white and um at the time it seemed like pretty far south austin and then all of a sudden they started building that clover leaf there and and now we're just i feel like I'm, we're in the heart of the city for sure. And there's all this development starting to happen. I, I regret seeing, well, like Hills Cafe is a good example mm -hmm. or Threadgills or, you know, I, I really, it makes me sad to see some of those um, local, you know, establishments with so much character and so much history sort of being, um, being overpowered by development. Um, so that's, that's very noticeable. For me personally, um, I I don't really subscribe to the oh the old Austin was so much better. My experience of it is just as great as it ever was because I feel like I have such a community. I like moved here and fell into a community um, of musicians and the fans 
the, the audience that are a very integral part of it are so supportive and so loving. And there, it's like, it's a, it's an ecosystem <laughs> that I still feel so supported by. I really do. And the venues um, that are struggling and just trying to do right by the musicians and survive the increase in rents and, it's a challenge for everyone, but I still, I feel the same level of support and sense of community that I did. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of towns that aren't like that. You know, there's great music, but not the kind of music, thriving, creative music scene that's here. But I do worry for sure about whether or not the affordability piece is going to, you know, it's definitely affecting that. And that, scares me for the musicians to not be able to afford to live here. Yeah, That's I, I read another be article this morning on that that was talking about how there was certain cities in the U.S. that the wealthiest people were taking over, and Austin was number five on that list now. Ah, yeah. So. Yeah. Was I on that list? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think so. <laughs> well, yeah, you qualify out there in Dripping Springs for being. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I'm, um, I also engage with, um, the business community and the philanthropic community a lot in Austin. And, uh, so I, I really see the generosity. I know that the, you know, the, the wealthy population that people are afraid are going to damage the community somehow or compromise the, the creative spirit of it. Um, I see the flip side of that a lot. I see that they, they help drive it. They, they support the arts and they support nonprofits and, and they really, really care about keeping, um, the, the mission alive for a lot of the organizations in town. And so if you get the right people with money, <laughs> you know, if you get the, get people moving in, that, that's the key is to make sure that the heart what draws people here continues to be respected and nurtured and given a place. You know, that's really important. And that's up to the community. It's up to the community leaders. It's up to all of us to remain active and vocal. And, you know, that's why the advocacy piece is really important. And um, people like Nakia, who created Austin, Texas Musicians to be a, advocacy voice for musicians to say, hey, this is an issue that's in front of the city council. This affects us. Go speak. Listen. Pay attention. We need those organizing forces. So back in the days when you used to be able to get out of the house, what, what was kind of your cool Austin experience that maybe you and Chris like to go do? Uh, hmm. I don't know. You know, Chris and I are both, um, we are workaholics, to tell you the truth. <laughs> we played so many gigs all the time that we were always, we hung out with friends. We would want to go hang out with friends. And, um, but neither of us are like regular hike and bike trail people. Um, I would do my own walks in our neighborhood. And, um, I think it's just going to hear, we would go hear more music. <laughs> we would like, on a night off, we would go, you know, hear somebody at Evangeline or, or, uh, you know, go to El Mercado to hear somebody else after we've just played there twice. You know, it's, uh, and then being with our kids, 
we just we have we're really lucky that we have children and grandchildren in town. So our our days, our time off is has before the pandemic was very limited. I was working swan songs or flying. I was flying to L.A. a lot, and Chris played a lot of nights and then played Sunday morning at Riverbend Church. Played Monday night at Don's, so we never really had a weekend. But when we did have time, first thing we would want to do is gather our family together, do family dinners, and they're all really good cooks. And <laughs> nice. Our grandkids are in Kyle, so that's um, to me, you know, a really uh, important part of of living in Austin is the fact that our kids still want to live here. Although my son moved to L.A. Uh-oh. But then I was out there all the time. I got to see him out there all the time. Yeah. So, so well. our our final weird question is, um, since Austin likes the motto, keep Austin weird, what's the weirdest thing you've seen since you've been here? Oh, wow. Um, That's the typical response. Right. <laughs> right. Um I'm not really sure what that would be. Uh, I guess Leslie running for mayor, you know, that was. <laughs> that's, a, that's a popular one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty weird. Um, you know, I, I, I always equate keep Austin weird with keep Austin with heart, you know, keep Austin's heart. And the other night, on that night for Austin, that TV mm-hmm. thing where they were um, doing the profiles of different Austin businesses. One of the most touching things I've seen recently was, was John Coons at Waterloo with his mask on delivering albums to the back of, you know, like we go to AGB and they bring your groceries and, and John putting an album in the back of a car right. delivery. I just love that. And I thought that is so Austin to me. That's a, you know, not weird, it's, but it's it's awesome. Very awesome. So, Christine, give us the websites where people can find Swan Songs and Recording Academy, if that's something mm-hmm. people can access. Yeah, yeah. The uh, Swan Songs is uh, Swan Songs with an S on the end. SwanSongs dot org. Um, that's an easy one. And um, then Chris and I are at albertandgage.com. Albert as an Einstein, I always say. And then <laughs> and Gage, G-A-G-E. Uh, and then the Recording Academy is uh, grammy.com. And, it, and then it, it takes you to different places. Uh, Recording Academy um, is under that umbrella. And if you're a musician you can join and become a member of the Recording Academy and then you vote in the Grammys and can engage with the local community. And uh, to me, what's important about that is that, especially in the categories that I, I don't vote in all the categories. There's a, a number that you're limited to, but I don't even, can't even vote in that many. Because I try and vote in categories where I really know the music and I resonate with the music. And so I'm in more in the American roots. And uh, those are smaller categories, and the the awards are only as um, relevant as the people voting in them. And so it's really important to, you know, if you're a folk musician, we want as many folk musicians really voting in those categories as possible so that the, um, the voting reflects that true community, not people, someone else that's not in that community going, well, I 
I've heard of that person. I'll go vote for that. You know, you want. Sure. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's quite a process and, um, I've, I've been involved for a long time, so I know it well and I know the people and I have a lot of respect for, um, everyone involved, the staff and, and around the country. And then the other, my fellow board members, um, it's a, it's a pretty amazing group that I've learned a lot from. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Kristen. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You want thank to you. Give, uh, one last plug of your shows that you've got coming up online. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um, so every, Monday night, not at Don's Depot. Every Monday is Chris Gage at eight o'clock Central Time, and I quite often sit in with him, and I manage the amazing camera work. Um, we have three different devices set up now and I can switch from different views. It's really, I actually have a great time doing that. Um, that's Monday nights at eight. And then we're starting to do Albert engage the Albert engage good time hour as a nod to Glenn Campbell, because Chris, Chris learned guitar from watching Glenn Campbell on TV. And then he played with Roy Clark for eight years. So he was around him and, and really, you know, he's one of his heroes. So the Albert Engage Good Time Hour on Fridays at 8 Central Time also. Excellent. Thank Joel, you have yeah. anything you need to plug? No. Okay. <laughs> we, we are working on a series of live streams from New World Delhi. Oh, great. Right. And, uh, so I will have announcements on that very soon. I just have to get my five-year-old grandchild to teach me all about computers. Yeah, I know. I know. I heard Lloyd Maines say the other night on the stream with Terry Hendricks something about an app, and he goes, "I don't usually no, I I don't really do the apps. I give my phone to my grandkids if there's something that I need." Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You call Chris. Didn't you talk to Chris maybe a little bit yeah. about? Because oh, he's really figured out a lot. Chris was just incredibly helpful and gave me some resources and. I'm kind of excited about about the prospects that uh, we're going to come up with. Maybe Are you going to do an audience too, like a, a safe distance <laughs> audience plus streaming? Or well, we thought we were going to, and then the numbers kept rising, and yep. so we've we've kind of tabled that for right now. Uh, the ultimate idea is we're going to stream every show that's on the stage. Right. And right. so. Right. It'll be the Delhi Global, the yeah. Global Delhi. Yeah, that's uh, great. We're right going now. through we're going through that that challenge with the Serenade, our swan songs, our big annual gala that was uh-huh. booked at Four Seasons with Robert uh, Earl Keane right, on October twenty right. fifth, and we're like, now I just feel like the that I'm going to just start planning for a hybrid of yeah. of fewer number of people in the room and then all of it virtual. And then if you get to that point and nobody can be there, we're still all set for virtual. Yeah. yeah and right. and if we can, if some people feel comfortable being there and it's safe to do that, we'll combine it a little bit, but there's no way it's going to be what it was last year, which was 450 people packed into a ballroom. Right. Well, nothing's like, going to be like it was last year. I know. <laughs> so. I know. Take well, care. Thank you, Chris. For on that note, I think I we'll will. wrap it up. And thank you guys both for being here. And we'll see you yeah. next time on the trail to Austin. Talk to you later. Thank Bye. you so much. Thank mm-hmm. you. Bye.